0: Hello, and welcome to the Hope Brooklyn Weekly Sermon Podcast. Hope Brooklyn is a community of faith in Brooklyn, New York, that believes wherever you are in your spiritual journey, there's room at the table. Thanks for listening, and enjoy this week's sermon. Um, Lord, you are good. You are good. You are good. There's so many voices vying for our attention. We've been taught to listen to so many many people and so many voices and often not not all the time but often those voices don't tell us nice things about ourselves and we know that when we look at you jesus when we consider your voice it's clear as day your voice says i see you i know you i have made you i am not ashamed of you you are mine come be in relationship with me. Lord, as we uh, continue in this series, as we examine what it means, Jesus, to say that you are political, <laughs> and, and not the way that we understand politics uh, as systems of governance, but the way we live our lives that is oriented toward a vision of what is good and best. That's oriented with what we love. As we consider and ask the question, Jesus, what do you love? And what does it look like to chase after what you love? How does that form us? Would you, would you uh, give us open ears and would you break through the hardness in our hearts and speak to every one of us today? Let us not leave. Cause I mean, it's, we're in New York City where it's, the train line shut down. It's already hard to get to church on Sundays. And then you just put a cold rainy May day on top of that. No one is in this room by accident. People who are here are here because you brought them here and you have something to say to them. So I pray that in this next bit of time they would be open to what that is. We bless you, Lord. It's in your name. Amen. All right. Well, welcome again. My name is Russ. I'm one of the pastors here. If you are joining us for the first time, we just kicked off a new series last week that we are calling The Politics of Jesus. The Politics of Jesus. Um, This has been a series I've been thinking about for a while, because over the last couple years, I've noticed there's been a lot of conversation about the intersection of church and state, right? About how politics is operating in our context, our context being the U.S., and where do um, Jesus' followers fit into all that, and we're exploring that in this series. Last week, we sort of reframed the whole discussion. We talked about the sin of Jeroboam, which at its... Uh, if you sort of distill it down, the sin of Jeroboam is this. It is to use God as a means to another political end. It's to use sort of uh, the the gospel. It's to use what Jesus is talking about as a means toward furthering uh, another state, another nation's political end. So when we talk about Jesus's politics in this series, we talk about it, independently of how it might affect the United States. Now, to be sure, if we live into Jesus's vision of what he cares about and what he loves, it will affect the nation that we live in, which in our case is the United States. But the goal for talking about it, why we do it, is not fundamentally to change the United States into any sort of vision or structure, okay? That's the sin of Jeroboam. Or another way of putting all of this is that the people of God are called to be today what the world is called to be ultimately. The people of God are called to be today what the world is called to be ultimately. So when we talk about what does Jesus love? What does he care about? How does he live? It's about who we're being formed into, the type of um, structures we live among. We are called to be today, what hopefully the world will become and they're called to be ultimately. And what we said is if we're not talking about the sin of Jeroboam, then what is Jesus's politics? And Jesus's politics are quite simply jubilee. Jesus's politics are the politics of Jubilee, And I know some of you in this room may not be familiar. I know we're, we're a community of faith where wherever you are in your spiritual journey, there's room at the table. It's sort of our mantra. So there might not be everyone in this room who is a follower of Jesus. And that is awesome and you are welcome here. Um, so that being the case, Jubilee might be an, uh, a weird concept. Even for followers, we're like, I don't know what Jubilee is. Uh, Jubilee was a practice in ancient Israel. Um, and, and the best way to, to explain it is that every 50th year, 5-0, every 50th year on the day of atonement, all spiritual debts that Israel had racked up would be forgiven. Now, I'm gonna stop there just for a second. The day of atonement was an annual thing. So every year, the high priest would go into the temple, into the most holy place, and he would offer a sacrifice. And that sacrifice would signal uh, the canceling out of all spiritual debts that had racked up. And when you think about what is a spiritual debt? Well, just consider yesterday, right? Just consider your Saturday. It's a nice little Saturday. But did you offer an unkind word at all yesterday? Did you maybe do something that was impatient or angry? Or did you act selfishly? I'll speak for myself, of course I did. (laughs) And if that's one day, then imagine the debt that is racking up over the course of an entire year of where I'm just failing to live into the vision of what it means to be an ideal human. So every year on the day of atonement, the high priest offers a sacrifice that cancels all the debts, all the wrongdoing in our lives and our hearts, done, canceled. God says, "You're, you're back on good terms with me. But the year of Jubilee also goes a step further, okay? So not only are the spiritual debts canceled, but every 50th year on the year of Jubilee, it would signal the canceling of all economic and social debts, the resetting of all structures of power that had built up in Israel over the last 50 years. What that means, over the course of 50 years, a lot of life happens. If you uh, you had a bad crop yield and you had to sell portions of your land, in the year of Jubilee, you get that land back. No questions asked. If you had a couple tough years, and you fell into poverty, and you became an indentured servant uh, for someone else, in the year of Jubilee, you were released, and you got your land back. The game was completely reset in the year of Jubilee. Completely reset. Crimes forgiven. Israelites got their family land back. It started over. And we said, Jesus's politics are the politics of Jubilee. But the two are inseparable. You cannot get Jesus without Jubilee, and you cannot get Jubilee without it coming through Jesus. Because you have to have that prior spiritual debt being forgiven. So we're gonna take the rest of the series to flesh out what this means. And for today's text, we're going to read John chapter four, which is very early on in John's gospel. So if you have your Bibles or your phones, you can pull it out. If not, we're going to put it on the screen behind us. Um, John chapter four, and Jesus is demonstrating this idea of what jubilee means, okay? So this is what we read. We're going to read verses three through 30. It's kind of a long story, uh, but I think it's really fascinating. And hopefully uh, um, I can prove to you why in the course of this, this message. Here we go. So he, he meaning Jesus, he left Judea and he went back once more to Galilee. Now he had to go through Samaria. So he came to a town in Samaria called Sychar near the plot of ground Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there and Jesus tired as he was from the journey sat down by the well. It was about noon. When a Samaritan woman came to draw water, Jesus said to her, will you give me a drink? His disciples had gone into the town to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, "'You are a Jew, and I am a Samaritan woman, "'for how can you ask me for a drink? "'Jews do not associate with Samaritans.' "'Jesus answered her, "'If you knew the gift of God "'and who it is that asks you for a drink, "'you would have asked him, "'and he would have given you living water. "'Sir,' the woman said, "'you have nothing to draw with, and the well is deep. "'Where can you get this living water? "'Are you greater than our father Jacob, "'who gave us the well and drank from it himself, "'as did also his sons and his livestock?' What you have said is quite true. Sir, the woman said, I can see that you are a prophet. When you get called out, you definitely go, I can see you're a prophet. Our ancestors worshiped on this mountain, but you Jews claim that the place where we must worship is in Jerusalem. And then once you say you're a prophet, you change the discussion, you make it a religious discussion, that's the trick. Woman, Jesus replied, believe me, a time is coming when you will worship the father neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem. You Samaritans worship what you don't know. We worship what we do know, for salvation is from the Jews. Yet a time is coming and is now come when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. They are the kind of worshipers the Father seeks. God is spirit and his worshipers must worship in spirit and in truth. The woman said, I know that Messiah, called Christ, is coming. When he comes, he will explain everything to us. And then Jesus declared, I, the one speaking to you, I am he. Just then his disciples returned and they were surprised to find him talking with a woman. But no one asked, what do you want or why are you talking with her? Then leaving her water jar, the woman went back to the town and said to the people, come see a man who told me everything I ever did. Could this be the Messiah? They came out of the town and made their way toward him. The thesis of today's message is quite simple. The reason why Jubilee is declared on the day of atonement is because before Jubilee can happen out there, it has to happen in here. Before we can even begin to understand how to reset structures of power out there, you have to reset structures of power in here. I have to reset those structures. Paulo Freer in his book, The Pedagogy of the Oppressed, he writes how the true focus of revolutionary change is never merely the oppressive structures and situations which we seek to escape. Not just that, but it's the peace of the oppressor which is planted deep within us. Before Jubilee can happen out there, it's gotta happen in here. And in our world, whether you are, quote unquote, the winner or the loser in our society, you still have the peace of the oppressor within. We all have voices within us that tell us stories about ourselves. Our societal structures that we live among, they are but the manifestations of our internal voices. And I think one of the loudest voices, definitely in my life, and I would, and as I've you know, stepped into pastoral ministry and talked with many of you, one of the loudest voices that does not allow Jubilee to enter in is the voice of shame, shame. I say that word and you immediately feel it, don't you? Your mind goes to it. I'm grateful to the Irish poet, Pedrig Tuama, who says, shame starts in the body. It's not a concept. Before it's a concept, it's in the body we feel it in our hearts and our lives. We feel the shame of past decisions or past moments. We feel the shame of present situations. We feel the shame of decisions or family decisions or histories attached to our families. We feel that shame. And Jesus in this story is trying to take you straight to it and confront it. He's trying to say, hey, those voices, They're no longer needed. There's a new voice that wants to speak to you. And it has a new story to tell you about yourselves. And that process of drilling deep and deep down to the root of the shame, that's a long process. And that's what we're gonna examine today. So in this conversation, we see a couple things happen. Initially, we see the first layers of shame. And the first layers of shame are the externals. This is a Samaritan woman in an unstable situation. Now, maybe you're aware of what this means, but I'm gonna briefly explain it. Samaria was a region, um, it's kind of like in in, in ancient Israel, they had like a Samaria sandwich is what it was. So you had Galilee in the north, the region of Galilee in the north, and you had the region of Judea with Jerusalem and all that in the south. But right in the middle was Samaria. And the, the story, the legends go that when the kingdom split into the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom, and the Northern Kingdom in around 800 BC in that area was conquered by the Assyrians. Uh, the legends go that the Jews of the Northern Kingdom ended up intermarrying with the Assyrians, thereby corrupting their pure blood. So the first layer of shame is ethnic shame. Dr. Grace G. Sun Kim, uh, she talks about uh, why ethnic purity is so important in the ancient world. And what she says is purity provides some sense of social cohesion, family stability, cultural security. It provides a core identity that you can build a community off of. So when we read in John's gospel that Jews do not associate with Samaritans, that's what we like to call in the theological circles an understatement. (laughs) Jews hated Samaritans. They did not talk to them. They did not go near them. So she's a Samaritan, strike one. She's also a woman, strike two. And I don't need to say too much, but suffice it to say, the the cultural milieu of the first century, to quote Aristotle, uh, the female, as it were, is a deformed male. Plato believed that men who were cowardly and unrighteous came back as women. Women had no value in the first century World, They had no voice. They were viewed as completely inferior to men. Marriage in the first century was not about a sharing of partnership or life. It was property transaction. That's what it was. So this is a woman, strike one, and this is a Samaritan woman, strike two. She's already uh, the marginalized in this world, but now she's doubly marginalized. And then we learn in the course of the conversation, Jesus says, go call your husband. And she says, I have none. And, she, and Jesus says, you're right. You've had five and your current one isn't your husband. We're gonna come back to this in a bit, but suffice it to say, uh, as Renita Weems writes, in ancient times, a woman's self-worth and social status pivoted around her family, namely the reputation of her husband, and more importantly, the number of children she had born, preferably males. So the first layers of structures of power, the first layers of shame are ethnicity, gender, and reputation or or stability. And this woman has struck out on all three. There's actually a prayer in the fourth century uh, Talmud, uh, which is a a Jewish prayer book uh, um, and uh, that developed. And and it's actually a prayer where uh, a Jewish man would rise in the morning and say, blessed are you, Lord, our God, who has not made me a Gentile, a slave, or a woman. And I'm not taking a shot because I have friends who, who are Jewish and who feel very uncomfortable with that prayer. But it's in their Talmud of, 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 blessed are you, Lord our God, who has not made me a Gentile, a slave, or a woman. She's worse than a Gentile. She's a Samaritan. She is a woman, and though not a slave, she certainly lacks the stability of a husband and a home, which is why, friends, she's sitting at the well at noon, hottest part of the day. No one goes to collect water at the hottest part of the day. No one goes. You go in the morning. She went out at noon because she doesn't want to see anybody. (laughs) She doesn't want anyone to see her. The shame is thick. So she did what we all do when we feel the shame. What do we do? We hide. I don't wanna see anyone. For her, she wore the shame on her body. So she had to literally hide, go at a time when no one else is there. For you and for me, what do you do with your shame? You just don't talk about it. You don't think about it. You push it down. We hide. We all have stories attached to our gender, our race, our family situation that fill us with shame. We all have that. Whether we've operated from the position of those who are oppressed by the worlds we live in, or whether we operate from the position of those who have done oppressing, we all have shame attached to that. I'm grateful to Dr. Grace G. Sun Kim, who talks about this, this concept of foreign women, the category of foreign women, non-native women. And she makes the claim uh, in, in one of her books that there may be no more abused group in world history than foreign women. That is to say, uh, non-native women living in a different culture, in a different environment. And you look throughout the history, and and, um, I don't have the full empirical data, but I could see that. She gives examples of, she's a Korean theologian, so she gives examples of when the Japanese occupation of Korea and um, apparently some 500,000, estimates of 500,000 young young women were were taken to to be made comfort women, where they would sexually service 50 men a day. Died, 75% of them died of venereal diseases. We think about our own history in America and we recognize the histories of shame done to women. This foreign women who have been so abused in world history, which is why what Jesus is doing cannot be adequately expressed. I I, I can't fully explain to you how insanely radical this is because he is a Jewish male rabbi. In the structures of power, he's at the center and she is a Samaritan woman without a husband. His shame would be in talking to her which is why she says, what are you doing talking to me? Her shame is what society has already said about her. He goes to her, he meets her, and look what he does first. He asks her for water. Jesus does not start by teaching. He does not start by correcting. The first thing he does is says, hey, can you help me? I'm thirsty. Y'all, I, I, Do you feel how radical this is? In the ancient world, this woman might as well have been non-existent. And yet the God who brings Jubilee goes to her and says, you have something I need. This woman had nothing that anyone needed. She didn't exist. And Jesus, God in the flesh is saying, could you provide me with water? God places himself in the position of one in need and he places her in the position of the benefactor which is insane. No matter how deep the shame goes, Jesus is trying to teach us, everyone has something even more fundamental. They're alive. Everyone has something to offer, which is why I'm so grateful that the first thing Jesus does is says, will you help me? I need your help. Why are you talking to me? (laughs) She asked, quite rightly. This doesn't make any sense. And then we, go a little deeper, we get to the second layer of shame. And the second layer of shame has to do with our stories. Because she says, are you greater than our father Jacob who gave us the well? Now there's a, a long story as part of that, but suffice it to say, this well is attached to a religious story that provides her with an identity. And that's the danger of religion. That's the danger of religion because stories and heroes of a religious tradition becomes systems of rules and expectations that we're all failing at. We never measure up to, or just the opposite. When we look at the stories and heroes of those part of a religious tradition, our religious tradition, you realize they did not act in a way that seemed to be in accordance with our faith and we feel shame for them. I had it in my notes, it's a good thing Darren talked about it, but the Lectio Divina journals, right? It's exactly the case. Uh, One day, we just sort of forget. And then day two, we're a little tired. And and then by day three, what's happened? The shame has just crept up. And we're like, oh, well, I failed. That's religion. Well, I failed. I can't be what's expected of me to be. Or when I consider the heroes of the faith and I recognize how my life is so little like theirs, there feels like this distance separating them from me. And the stories I tell about myself is that I'm a failure and that I don't have it within me and I can't do it. Or when I consider how Jesus has been used by those in our country to perpetuate economic and racial violence against others. And I feel ashamed because they're claiming that name that I claim, Christian. I said, what happened? That's not Jesus. (laughs) I was actually having a conversation uh, with a friend this week, uh, who's a woman who studied African-American studies in college. And we were, we were talking about the irony because in college she almost left her faith as a follower of Jesus. And the reason being is because she couldn't make sense. She felt such shame at the way Christianity was used to oppress uh, her ancestors. And the irony is that I felt the exact same way. I struggled with what is this faith if people from my ancestors could use this to oppress. We both have shame related to this, related to religion and related to our families. We ask these questions. That's the second layer of shame, our stories. But it's our personal stories too. Our personal stories elicit shame. I don't know if you do this, um, but when my family, I have two brothers, and when we get together, which isn't very often, we just start sharing stories of the past, right? We start sharing stories. Uh, They provide an identity, a cohesion. We talk about my older brother, Matthew, when he got his first tattoo and I saw it because he bent over at church and it was on his back and I go, oh my goodness. And then my mom finally discovered it and she bawled. Best Mother's Day gift ever for her. She was bald. We talk about Andrew, my younger brother. And like, he's a sly little critter, all right? Because every, my parents didn't think that he was mischievous. No, 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 he hid his mischief. He watched me and Matthew grow up and he saw the mistakes we made. And he's like, I'm gonna still do what I want. I'm just gonna be really sly about it. So we talk about that. And now every, now the joke's on him. Everyone knows, all right? We talk about how I was the golden child. And you know, like just I, I'm like redeeming the family name. That's what we talk about, you know? And they're not here to say anything, so you just have to trust my story, you know? But what happens? Here's what's interesting. When we tell these stories, our personal stories, often, they keep us stuck. So here's here's what's interesting. My brothers and I, we are, I think, grown men, okay? We are grown men. And we come home, and it's like we immediately revert to being 12-year-old boys again. And like my, my, my wife, Anna, and, and their, their uh, wives and, and significant others, they're sort of shocked of like, what is happening with you guys right now? And Anna will be like, Russell, your mom does not need to do your laundry. And I'm like, babe, she wants to do it. Like, I mean, do you want me to deprive her of this? You know, like, I didn't ask, you know, she loves it. We revert to this identity, right? It's almost like our stories that we tell keep us. And that's quite humorous, but it could also be quite tragic as well. The stories that we tell keep us stuck in a certain place, which is why I love it. When she starts asking these questions, what about Jacob? What about as well? Jesus just doesn't even answer it. (laughs) He's like, hey, I don't want to talk about that. I'm not interested in the stories of your past. I got a new story for you. It's like, I'm not, I'm not interested I'm not interested in the history or the stories that society has told about you. I'm not interested about the narratives that you keep telling yourself about how you failed in the past or how people who, who carry your family name or call themselves Christians have failed. I'm not interested on in what you think about yourself based on your gender, race, or, 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 or a family situation. Jesus is like, I don't care. I don't care about those stories. I don't wanna talk about them. I have a new story for you. Do you want to know it? I know there's a water, a well of water that will spring up into an eternal well. You won't be thirsty anymore, do you want it? I don't wanna talk about what you wanna talk about. I don't wanna talk about those narratives. They just keep you stuck. They put up walls and they don't allow me to enter in and tell you something new. I have something new, do you want it? That's what he's doing, he's brushing it aside. Stop putting up walls of shame, they're unhelpful. I have something new, there's a well of water do you want it? Shame's exhausting. She bites, she's like, where is this water? So I don't have to keep coming here. I wonder if she even thinks about it practically of like, now I really won't have to run into people anymore. I want to keep coming to this well. And then he says, go call your husband and come back. She says, I have no husband. He goes, you're right, what you say is true. You've had five and the one you have is not your husband. Jesus waits until here, deep into the conversation, to reveal the final layer of shame. That he knows the full weight of what she's carrying. He knows her. He knows her full story. See, our interpretations of this passage often reveal our hidden assumptions and the narratives within us, because I had always heard this interpreted that she was a loose woman, a prostitute. But it doesn't say that anywhere. Jesus doesn't say that. And when you remember that a woman's worth in the ancient world was solely as a wife and a mother, and men in the ancient world were able to divorce their wives on the flimsiest of grounds, the flimsiest of grounds, Perhaps there's an alternative story. Perhaps husband one didn't treat her well. Husband two did the same. And then by husband three, she was like, you know what, screw it. I'm looking out for myself. No one else is gonna protect me. I'm gonna protect me. Perhaps there are bigger forces in play. Perhaps. Maybe she is a prostitute, but I love that Jesus doesn't even reference it. He doesn't even say it. He just wants her to know that he sees her. He sees her. Her. He sees into the core of the deepest shame she's carrying and he's still here. He's not going anywhere. He wants a Jewish male rabbi. He knows her and he wants to still be talking with her. Perhaps what shame does is makes you feel like it's all your fault. And Jesus is saying, stop giving yourself so much credit. <laughs> stop, stop playing the victim card. There's so much more to this world that you can't even see. I see you. He doesn't condemn her. He doesn't let her off the hook. He just says, I see you and I'm still here. He wants her to know that he knows how the world sees her. He knows she's a Samaritan and he's a Jew. He knows she's on her sixth relationship and he's a rabbi. He knows she's a woman and he's a man. He knows all of this and he is still offering her a well of water. (laughs) He knows. Get that shame out of here. I have something new for you but he got too close and shame hurts. So she tries to put the wall back up with that religious discussion, right? Uh, I can see you're a prophet. Oh man. And, and uh, you know, our ancestors say we have to worship on this mountain, but, but the Jews say we have to worship in Jerusalem. And he... Jesus is like, I don't wanna talk about that. He just smashes it aside. I want nothing to do with that. Believe me, woman, a time is coming when the true worshipers, it won't matter if they're worshiping on that mountain or in Jerusalem, they will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. In the same way that our societal structures are but manifestations of our internal voices. Jesus is saying the oppressive structures or, or or inversely where we worship, that is different than what's going on inside your heart. The true worshipers will worship in spirit and truth. I don't care if it's on that mountain or in Jerusalem. I want to get to your heart. I want to get to the core of you. These narratives that you're spinning, that you're putting up, that you've rehearsed, that may be true from other people's perspectives. They're not true for me. I want to see your heart. Before Jubilee can happen out there, it has to happen in here. Which means any parts of shame attached to your story, the stories you tell about yourself. Jesus is saying, I see it, but I don't wanna talk about it. Brush it aside, I have something new to tell you. You may have heard, uh, I've talked about him before, Jean Vanier. Jean Vanier was a a Catholic and um, he recently passed away about a week or so ago, uh, 90 years of age. He started communities all across the world called La Arche. Uh, he was Canadian, but he lived in France, um, the Arc. And these communities were where uh, the physically and mentally disabled would live with uh, the physically and mental, according to society, abled. But they would not live in any sort of power dynamics, um, though certainly there were some that required more physical care. Uh, they lived as friends and as family. They both received from one another. And he talked about when this idea started coming to him because he saw the way that the physically and mentally disabled were treated. Uh, They were put away in uh, insane asylums. They were just sort of discarded on the periphery. And he brought them in. And he says one of the first tenants he ever had was a man who was so uh, incapacitated. He couldn't speak And, and he was immobile. He couldn't take care of himself. He couldn't feed himself. He was completely immobile. But what he did do all the time was he screamed. That's all he could do was scream. And Vanier talks about, and probably for the parents in the room, uh, maybe you understand with, when kids are screaming, that there were some times early on where he was trying to provide such love, but the screams were driving him crazy that he wanted to do violence to him. But he didn't. And he kept offering, he kept holding his hands, and he kept bathing him, and he kept feeding him, and he kept telling him, I love you, but he couldn't communicate back. He just screamed because the shame was so thick because everywhere this man had gone, all he had heard is, why are you here? What do you do? You're a waste of life. And he internalized those voices, and he communicated what we all communicate. He screamed. And the more Vanier held him and fed him and talk to him slowly, he stopped screaming. They were never able to have a conversation the way we understand it, but he stopped screaming, which Vanier took to understand that he knew he was loved. And Vanier, in, in, a, in a podcast, he's talking about 10 years ago, and he says, somewhere, the deepest desire for us all is to be appreciated, to be loved to be seen as somebody of value. Not just admired, but loved. When you admire people, you put them on pedestals. When you love people, you want to be together. So really the first meeting I had with people with disabilities, what touched me was their cry for relationship. Some of them had been in the psychiatric hospital. All of them had lived pain and the pain of rejection. One of the words of Jesus to Peter toward the end of the gospel, John's gospel is, do you love me? Thus the cry of God saying, do you love me? And the cry of people who have been wounded, put aside, who have lost trust in themselves, been considered as mad and all the rest. Their cry is, do you love me? It's these two cries that come together. See, I think that's what Jesus is trying to communicate with this woman. He knows, as he knows each and every single one of you in this room, that the deepest cry of your heart is, does anyone love me like the real me? Like getting through all these walls I put up, but does anyone love me? And Jesus is trying to burrow into the core to say, I see you, I hear your question. Yes, I love you. Do you love me? See, this is why it's so different from religion. Religion just has God saying, Yes, I accept you or yes, I love you maybe, but not Jesus. Jesus is love in the flesh. So love has to go both ways. So he enters in, you cuts through the shame. He gets to your core cry of your heart after you've been overlooked and discarded and, and marginalized. And he says, I hear your cry. I love you. Do you love me? Do you love me? Will you love me back too? And out of that, relationship is born. Before Jubilee can happen out there, it has to happen in here. You have to know that God has entered into the depths of your being, of your shame, and said, throw it away. I love you. Do you love me? And it's easy to read this story and be sentimental about it and be like, oh, how compassionate Jesus is being. Jesus is not being compassionate. He's being political. He's being deeply political. Here's why. At the end of the conversation, the woman said, I know that Messiah called Christ, the savior. I know he's coming. When he comes, he will explain everything to us. And then Jesus declared, I, the one speaking to you, I am he. Then leaving her water jar, the woman went back to the town and said to the people, come see a man who told me everything I ever did. Could this be the Messiah? They came out of the, t- the town and made their way toward him. Here's why this is fascinating and phenomenal. One chapter before in John chapter three, Jesus has a conversation with a man named Nicodemus. Nicodemus is a Jewish Pharisee. That is to say, he's another man who's benefiting from the structures of the world, just like Jesus. He is a man of power and Nicodemus comes to Jesus and he's seeking out truth and revelation. They have a conversation. But then in John chapter four, it starts by saying, it was necessary for Jesus to go through Samaria, but it wasn't necessary. Remember I told you about the Samaria sandwich? You have Galilee up here and you have Judea and Jerusalem down here and Samaria in the middle. If Jews wanted to travel between the North and the South, they didn't go through Samaria, though that was the quickest route. They had a circuitous route. They went around Samaria. So it wasn't necessary for Jesus to go through Samaria unless he's trying to get it something else. Notice in chapter three, Nicodemus seeks out Jesus. In chapter four, Jesus seeks out this woman. In chapter three, Nicodemus initiates the conversation. In chapter four, Jesus initiates the conversation. And in a life and in a story where Jesus will not reveal himself to people, people will say, I know you're the Messiah. And he says, don't tell anyone. He will not reveal who he is, his true identity. Jesus revealed, doesn't reveal himself in Nicodemus, the man of power, reveals himself to the Samaritan woman in the unstable situation. Says the one that you're speaking to, I am he. And I love this friends, please don't miss this. This woman is so overcome by the empowering love she is encountering in this moment. She forgets who she is. She forgets her shame. She forgets that she's the one that comes to the well at noon because she doesn't wanna see people. And she runs into the town and she says, come see a man who has told me everything I've ever done. Could this be the Messiah? See, when you encounter the love of Jesus, when you encounter Jesus saying at your root, I see you, I love you, do you love me? And when you respond, yes, something shifts. You forget your shame, you forget who you are, and you become someone completely new. She forgets the stories that others have told her about herself and she becomes Jesus's first evangelist. (laughs) And this woman, this Samaritan woman with a reputation who's trying to avoid people, who people are avoiding, when she announces who Jesus is, there must be such power about her, the whole town forgets who she is, presumably, and follows her back out to Jesus. The true focus of revolutionary change is never merely the oppressive situations we seek to escape, but the peace of the oppressor, which is planted deep within us. So Why is this political? This is political because the reality is, whether you feel like you're winning or losing by the world, we're all losing. we all need at our core, we all have a heart that cries out, does anyone love me? And Jesus is trying to bring Jubilee to us and say, yes, I see you, I love you. But here's the issue. Those who benefit from the structures, they're gonna be hesitant to change the structures, right? Makes sense. So Jesus goes to this woman Because this woman has already been forgotten and discarded and been the marginalized of the marginalized. She's open to the message of Jubilee. Christianity has often been called as it's spread from the Middle East across the world. It's been maligned as a movement of women and slaves. Because if you follow how the gospel moves in the different cultures, it's never the most powerful of the culture who accept it first. It's always those on the underbelly. Because they see it. God is saying, I see you, you don't come to me, I come to you and I tell you, I love you. The shame has no power. You can become a new creation. This is why this is a political statement by Jesus. Because the most marginalized, the most ashamed who have met Jesus are no longer ashamed and they reveal to us the truth of the gospel, that God is creating a new world. And those who have been forgotten will be the ones who lead us into it. They show us what the world is like. They reveal to us the truth of God's love. I wanna invite the band back up and just close with one story. Last summer, um, my wife Anna and I were able to take uh, our honeymoon, which is three and a half years uh, later, and we got married, but it was amazing. And one of our first stops was in Barcelona. And on one day, we took a bus, a tour bus, out to this mountain called Monteserrat. Probably not saying that right, but Monteserrat. Uh, and there's a monastery, it's about an hour outside of Barcelona, and there's a monastery there. Uh, it means Jagged Mountain. And the legends go that in the eighth century, local shepherds, they heard music coming from the mountain. And they went to the mountain, and uh, they, they um, couldn't find the music, but what they found was a statue, according to the legends, they found a statue carved into the stone that they called, in the Catalan language, La Moraneta, which I'm sure I'm not saying that, route, that right. Uh, the Black Virgin, the Black Mary. It was a, a statue of, of Mary, the mother of Jesus, Um, and very dark skin, and they tried to take it away back to the town, and as they took it away, it got heavier, so they they surmised that the statue belonged to the mountain, so they brought the statue back, and they built uh, a basilica around it, and it has a monastery, has the oldest boy choir in all of Europe there, and it's a beautiful, beautiful place, and you can visit this mountain. This is La Moraneta's Mountain. And um, you can go into the chapel that is built around her and you can pray to her and touch her foot. Um, And it's a really beautiful place. And there's this one room off to the side where people can leave gifts to La Moroneta. They can leave uh, trinkets and and pray prayers. So uh, I saw Iron Man masks. I saw Liverpool scarves. I'm pretty sure La Moroneta rejected that one. Um, I uh, I saw... I saw postcards, I saw little clothing, baby clothes. It was super moving and emotional. These people who are kind of like the little drummer boy bringing all they have to La Moroneta. And it was emotional for me as well because I was reflecting that Mary was a young, teenage, poor woman of color. And God chose her to carry his son. Remembering Dr. Kim saying that the foreign woman may be the most oppressed person in human history. I found myself deeply moved in considering the way women have been treated, non-native women in our own country that God says, let me choose you. Let my son grow in you and you become the mother of the new creation. I found myself not praying to Mary, but talking to her and thanking her because she is my mother too. And this Samaritan woman is the eldest sister who took the story of Jesus to the town. Friends, before Jubilee can happen out there, it has to happen in here. Where your shame seeks to say to you, God can't love you cause of X, Y, or Z. Jesus is saying, that's completely untrue. Look at the way my family has spread. Look at the people I have chosen to be the firstborn, to carry my message to the world. All are used in this jubilee. All are used in this new family. The question is simple. I love you. Do you love me? And so what we've said we're gonna do with this series is we're gonna offer three steps, a personal, a social, and a structural step. So I have it up behind me. Personally, there may be some in this room who have not encountered or haven't encountered in a while the jubilee of Jesus. They haven't heard God enter say, I see your shame. I don't want to talk about it. I want you to know that I love you. Do you love me? So today, maybe your step, your personal step is to respond with open hands and open hearts to the love of Jesus. Socially, uh, our justice ministry has talked about this amazing organization, Safe Families for Children, which partners us up with families in crisis throughout Brooklyn. And again, it's not, a, it's not a situation where we have something they need. It's a situation of relationship where we receive just as much as we give. Uh, so Our goal for this series is to have 50 people by the end of it who are open to learning more about safe families. There's a sign up sheet at the what's next table. After service, go sign up there. We have 21 right now. And then if this story is true, then it needs to be reflected by the people of God. And so I just want to put the call out there. If you're a woman in this space and you felt like over time and in your life, God has been stirring in your heart to be a minister of the gospel in some sense, maybe you don't know what that means. Would you come talk to me after service? I'll be at the What's Next table because I'm developing a content cohort to help discern and raise up more female leaders in our community. Would you join me in prayer? God, we, uh, before Jubilee can happen out there, before we can even begin to bring, to reset structures of power and bring new life, it has to come to us in here. So for each heart in this room, would they look, would each person look at their shame and hear your voice that says, I see you, I know you, I love you. I hear the cry of your heart saying, does anyone love me? And would they hear God say, to them. I love you. Do you love me? All the stories that have been told about us, Lord, that we tell ourselves, would you silence them, brush them aside so we can step into a new reality where we, like this woman, forget who we are, forget who we have been, and we become a new creation. We become evangelists. Those who tell the world about the incredible love of God that does not see the way the world sees, does not judge the way the world judges, but is after our hearts. Thank you for the mothers in this room. Thank you for the mothers who have taught us what it means to love, who have sacrificed themselves for the sake of giving life to another. Make us a community like that, God. We need you. Pour down your love on us today. It's in your name, amen. Thanks again for tuning in to this week's sermon. To find out more about the mission and ministry of Hope Brooklyn, details about Sunday worship and brunch, to subscribe to our other podcasts, and lots more, visit us online at www.hopebrooklyn.org.